All right, if you want to open up to Joshua chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. Um, We're in a series on the book of Joshua called Get Ready to Cross the River, and we've been looking at uh, this book um, because it is a book for God's people in a new season. And in this new season, there's all sorts of lessons uh, to learn, and there's wisdom for God's people to know how do we move into a new season. So we've been looking at these stories uh, the last few weeks. We've looked at and we're, uh, where Joshua opens. Moses has just passed away. Joshua has become the new leader, and they're ready to move into the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness after they came out of Egyptian captivity uh, for the last 40 years. Uh, we, we looked at stories of how they sent spies into the land, and they meet, met with Rahab, and they came back, and they gave a report, and they said, let's go. And then the last few weeks, we looked how they crossed the river and how God worked this miracle where he, he stopped the flow of the Jordan River, and the Israelites were able to pass through on dry land. And here we have chapter 5, the next part of the story, and it opens up with these words. And what's interesting about verse 1 is it's the words, it's, it's, it echoes Rahab from chapter 2. Like, it's, it's almost like if you're watching this on Netflix and you're binge-watching it, um, you know, like, when you watch a Netflix show and it's like, last time on the book of Joshua, and it has, like, a little 30-second, like, recap, and then it's like it ends with the echo of Rahab's words where she said that the people here, their hearts melted in fear, and they had no courage because of who the Israelites were and what God was doing through them. They had heard those stories, and now that's being played out here. So the people of God, they cross the river. They're ready to move into the land of promise. And God does something really interesting next. He stops them. He slows them down. Um, my uh, dad is a pastor. And as uh, he's like, I think, what, 68 years old now. So he's kind of like semi-retired. And he was in this role um, in the denomination he's a part of, where he was like the state director. And um, he just like retired from that position um, in the, like, the last few weeks. And now he's even to a more part-time role with, with the church. Um, but we had like a breakfast yesterday, the denomination did, to honor just his time. I think he was in that role for like eight years or so. And so I went to this breakfast, and um, there were all these people that I had known um, from when my family moved here, like back in 1987 when I was a kid. And so we'd see these old people, and they're like, oh, it's Don Doe's son. You're a pastor now. Wow. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, great. And, uh, but I ran into my, my old Sunday school teacher, and her name was Beth. And uh, she, I, I said to this day, it was like the best storyteller I have ever heard. And I grew up in Sunday school before VeggieTales. So I don't know if you were part of like the VeggieTale generation. Grace is raising her hand. Um, I was a part of like the flannel graph generation of Sunday school. And Beth would always pull out this flannel graph. And what I remember is like she would teach the book of Joshua. And it was like, I I was like, we're in Joshua right now. Beth was always like teaching. And I loved those flannel graphs because like as a, I was thinking I was like a third grader. um, You know, like the stories were like armies and battles and spies. Like that just epic stories that captivated me. 
And I, I just, I remember that, like, when I saw Beth, oh, yeah, yeah, the first time I heard these stories of, of Joshua was in that class. Joshua chapter 5 was never taught in Sunday school. Like, Joshua chapter 5, you can't flannel graph this. And, like, what happens next, um, we have to remember, like, we're reading this from, like, 2023, um, our, our very modern lives that we, we live and the things that are going on here, some of these rituals that take place had such profound meaning for people for what they represented and what they expressed. And what God's doing here, as they cross the river and he tells them to stop, um, there's this reminder for his people that this whole story of like the exodus that we spent all summer in, the exodus wasn't just about leaving Egypt, but it was coming into the promised land as well. You might say it like this. They weren't just saved from the Egyptians. They were saved to go to this destination. They weren't just saved from something. They were saved for something. They they were freed from the Egyptians, but they were given this identity, this kingdom of priests, that they were moving into this new place that God had for them. It wasn't just being saved from something. It was being saved for something. And God is connecting this story even as they move from the wilderness into the promised land, he's having them stop, and here is what he has them do. Joshua 5 verse 2 says this, at the time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gebeath Harloth. So circumcision, if you know what that means, I don't need to explain it to you. If you're too young to know what that means, you could talk to your parents. If you're old enough to know what that means but don't know what that means, you can figure it out on yourself. We're not going to get into the details on it. But this is what God tells them to do. Verse 4, now this is why we did, he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give us, a land flowing of milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgah on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce from the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. And the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year, they ate produce for, of Canaan, the end of a season. Like they have this moment where they stop, they pause, they've moved across the river, 
God has them slow down, and we find out that it's the end of a season of dependency with the manna that showed up every day. There's a whole bunch of different things going on here. There's, it's, it's full of things that are symbolic for the people that represent what God has done, what represent their identity. There's so much going on here. But like when you're thinking about like this, this plan that they have, like they've crossed the river, and they, this river was a barrier for, for them. And the, the, the hostile people in the land towards them, the people in Jericho thought, this river is going to protect us. But when God dries it up and they cross over, they have the element of surprise. You would think as like a military leader that, you know, that, that Joshua would be like, all right, let's go. And God says, no, 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 no. Like we, we have the element of surprise. He says, no, stop, slow down. We find out that God's ways are just so much different than the ways of man. The way that God like, has people move in, it's just so much different. And he's concerned about something different as well with these people. So before they advance, they're across the river. Before they move into the land, God calls them to faithfulness first. He calls them to faithfulness, and right away he tests their faithfulness And for the Israelites, faithfulness means giving priority to Passover before claiming the land, to stop and to remember and to celebrate the Passover. Up until this point, we've been given hints that the time of this crossing was in the spring. It talks about um, the the different plant life that's alive, that they're building like the roof of of, uh, Rahab's house out of. It says that, it, that it's the flood season, so the river is flooding and it's crossing. Um, it's it, like all of those point to uh, the spring, which is when they celebrate Passover. In fact, it tells us that it's the 10th day of the first month when they actually cross the river. And that would have been four days before the Passover. It's the day they choose the Passover lamb. Um, it's kind of like here, like all of the dads in this room know what month it is when we start to plant our winter rye, Right? Like, what does it mean when we're planning winter rye? It's October, yeah, because the golf course, is, golf course is closed down and then we're working in our backyard. Like, it's the same thing. Like, it would have, like, the, the story's been leading up to this, that it's spring and it's time to celebrate Passover. And it just so happens when they cross the river, it's the same week as Passover. And God says to stop and to remember. And this Passover story that is, so meaningful for the people of God, represents their salvation from, his, from the Egyptians. If you remember the Exodus story, that there's all the plagues, and then it, it, the climax of the plagues is the, the angel of death that comes. And the way that the, the Israelites uh, have that angel of Passover is they, they kill a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, they take the blood of the lamb, they put it on the doorpost, and the angel of death passes over their house. From there, they're, they're finally given the okay to leave Egypt. It's essential to their salvation story, this Passover celebration. It's a time of remembrance, but they also celebrate with this meal. And as they cross the river, they're all ready to go. They have momentum. They have the element of surprise. And God says, no, wait, remember, do not forget your story. Partake in these rituals that remind you of what I've done. The timing of it, I'll figure out, but stop and celebrate. So the ritual of celebrating Passover, but then this whole circumcision thing that's with it. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. They were given in God's word this command, a foreigner residing among you 
who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised, and then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. So for them, they aren't supposed to partake in this meal of remembrance until they've gone through this act of circumcision. And you might think like, wow, what in the world is that all about? But in the ancient world, for them to, like this, this was something symbolic for them that represented something internal. And for them to restore their relationship with God, to take the Passover, they knew that they were called to the circumcision. And what circumcision was, it was this outward physical sign of this eternal covenant that they had with God. And like, how do you make a covenant? And how do you show that you are going to obey this covenant? You would go to something as drastic as this. You would become a marked people. You'd become a set-apart people. They go through this ritual because God says, this, this will show that you're, you're obedient to this thing that I'm doing. But circumcision, this outward and physical sign of an eternal covenant, the physical sign was always intended to lead to a heart transformation. It was always intended to lead to what the New Testament scholars call, or New Testament writers call, a circumcised heart, marked by obedience to God. This is this physical thing they did that represented this invisible transformation, this thing that inside of them said, I'm obedient to this God and to what he has called me to do. So it was this, this act, this religious act that represented the internal transformation. But one of the things that, I mean, I can't imagine they're excited about this, right? I can't imagine the men are like, what are we doing? But here's what this act would do that represents this, uh, this surrender to God. It reminds them that they, they must remove anything that stands between them and complete surrender. So this is a radical call of obedience and faithfulness to Yahweh for the, for the people of God. This is a radical call to faithfulness to say, we are showing you, Lord, that, that we are with you, that we are listening to you, that we, we will do what you call us to do. This radical act of faithfulness, of surrender. Faithfulness to God, it means that we make God's priorities our priorities. Like we like to talk about like radical faith, but radical faithfulness to say, I'm just going to prioritize my life around what God, who he is, what he's done, what his word tells me, that is going to become my priority. That is going to become my center as a follower to him. And I will remove whatever it is that gets in the way of that because faithfulness means prioritizing around God and around who he is. This is this act of circumcision for them. Now, circumcision, uh, we, we know in the New Testament how this becomes something that just becomes an empty practice. The, the writers of the New Testament started to say, this is actually explaining something that more modern minds will understand, this transformation that takes place. And in Romans chapter 2, it says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from people, but from God. And they started to talk about the same obedience, the same surrender, the same thing that marked us. But it took on this new meaning. 
Colossians chapter 2, Paul's writing and he's explaining this, and he says, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. There's this thing that marks you, this transformation that takes place. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the, by the cross. This, this idea that the salvation that God offers people, that to say, you, you've been enslaved by something, you've been enslaved by this sin, you've been enslaved by this evil one that wants to kill and steal and destroy, and I am freeing you from that in the same way that I freed the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. When their life had no hope, when their life was miserable, when it was controlled, when they had no freedom, I set them free. And the same thing I am doing with you with the things that enslave you, with the things that seek to kill and steal and destroy your soul, with the cross, I have set them free. There's this other type of circumcision that takes place where we receive this victory. So they remember this. Before they move into this promised land, they stop and they are reminded. They are called to faithfulness, to come back to God and remember what he has done for them. For them, there's this outward expression. For us, we have an outward expression. It's called baptism. This, this time where we say, we, we show outwardly what has happened inwardly, that there's this transformation that has taken place, that we have gone from death to life. We have, we have gone through the sea and all that enslaves us has been washed away. We have this physical act that we do and it lets the whole world know that salvation has come here. For them, they stop, they remember, and the men are circumcised. It's something that points back to what God has done, but also is something that points forward to their future. So in this moment, what's happening is as they cross the river and as they stop and they go through these rituals of circumcision and Passover, they are remembering but they are also anticipating. We haven't just been saved from something. We've been saved for something. There's a future here. As they remember, they're full of gratitude. And as they look ahead, they're full of hope. They gather to experience this in this moment. When we gather on Sunday, we, we gather to experience gratitude and hope. Gratitude of, for what God has done for us and hope for what he will do. Gratitude and hope are good for the heart. And God has them stop because God is always more concerned about our hearts than he is our mission. And before this mission, he has them stop. He has them remember. They're filled with gratitude and they're filled with hope. He calls them to faithfulness. And then also, 
what happens after they stop and they, they have these rituals, they start to get ready to move forward. We're reminded as this story uh, in, in Joshua 5 wraps up, it says um, that the manna runs out, but then it's replaced by something else. And it says God still provides it, but he feeds them from what it comes from the ground. Because it is faithfulness, it is in faithfulness that we truly experience God's provision. It is in faithfulness that he takes care of us. It is in faithfulness that he provides for our needs. Joshua 5.11, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. There's something that shifts in their diet here. Because in the wilderness, they were completely dependent on God's provision. And here it tells us that he's still the one that provides. But here's how that provision works out. There's, there's two ways God provides. One is miraculously. And we see miraculously God providing this manna, their daily bread for their time in the wilderness. When they were desperate, when they were hungry, God provides manna. And it creates this incredible dependency on God. And their weakness, God, is strong. God takes them through this journey where they experience that miraculous provision. And then the other way that God provides is through just the ordinary. He provides through the miraculous, but he provides through the ordinary. He uses our work, our circumstances. He is still the one who provides. This is what I think congregational life is about. Through our ordinary faithfulness, we meet needs of others in all sorts of different ways. To be a part of a church where just the ordinary provision of God meets us relationally with each other. And it is through faithfulness that we experience God's provision, the miraculous and the ordinary. But then we also see that faithfulness is a prerequisite to victory. God calls them, he stops them, he says, faithfulness first, be reminded of what I've done, partake in the celebration that allows you to proclaim these things. And from there, they're ready for mission. From there, they're ready for what is next. Faithfulness is a prerequisite to victory. In this story, they get across the river. They're ready to go. God slows them down. They stop ritualistically. They celebrate the Passover. They go through the circumcision. Like, what does all of this mean? What is going on here? Well, we're about to get ready to go to Jericho. That's next week. But what this all means, I, I, for me, I, to, to simplify, if I could like distill these what God is doing in this world. I've distilled it down to three different works. And these are, these are Jared's ideas of how God works. Um, and, and so that there's some theology with it. But this is, I think for me, understanding, here's how God works in this world. God is always at work. And the people of Israel are experiencing this work. God is always at work. And, and here's the three types of work that God does. God, God the work of God, the work, it, there's the work that God has done for us. That is a work that he has done on the cross. We just read about this work that gives us salvation, that we're enslaved to sin, but he does something about it, that God so loves the world that he sends Jesus into this world, and he has done this work for us on the cross, which sets us free, which, which gives us life that is eternal, that conquers sin and death, the work of the cross, conquering death, rising from the dead, inviting us to resurrection life. We have to come to grips with what that means. We have to come to a decision where we say, do we believe that? 
do we accept that, that God has done this work? Maybe that's something you have not considered before. It comes from God's love, where he says, I will restore this relationship with you. I will make a way through this salvation work on the cross. God has done a work for us. But then also, God is doing a work in us. Because I've experienced this work that God has done for me on the cross. I've accepted that. I have surrendered to that moment. And you know what? I still don't like Mondays. I still don't like Lakers fans. You know, I get grumpy towards my... Like, like if God has done this work for me, what is wrong with me? Well, God is still doing a work in us. You might have grown up in a church that called that sanctification, but there's this renewing work that God is constantly doing in our heart that is drawing us to be more like him, that is molding us and shaping us to be more like him, that is aligning our heart to be more like his heart, that is reprioritizing our life to be more like him. And that is this continued work that he's just doing in our, in our lives. And what I've found is, like with the, the Israelites, coming back to this moment of circumcision, there's times in our life where we have to, to come back and, and just surrender and say, God, there are things now that I have, I have placed inside my heart and my soul that hinder me from experiencing that good work that is inside of me. There are things that entangle me, and, and, and there are things that I just get wrong. And we come back in, in, in times where we say, Lord, continue to work in me, even if that requires me to surrender certain things. Like, I know I'm forgiven, and yet there's things I still need to surrender to him so that that renewing work can just continue in my life. And then there's the work that God is doing through us. All of us have been blessed with gifting and talents and passions and resources. And we, when we come to this place where we're like, God hasn't just saved us from this Egypt, but he has saved us for his promises we realize that now God is going to work through our lives, and our lives have incredible meaning. Our lives have incredible purpose because we're a part of the story of his kingdom, a story that is historic and global and eternal, where we participate with him as the body of Christ in any place that we're living, being his hands, his feet, a kingdom of priests, and God's work flows through us to others. So there's this work that's done for us, there's this work that is doing in us, and there's this work that he's doing through us, the work of God. For the people of Israel, as they stop, I think they're reminded of this at the banks of the Jordan. God has done this great work. For them, there's this celebration of what that is, it's this outward expression. In two weeks is our next baptism Sunday. And for us, it's a time to celebrate what God has done in your heart, in your life. And in two weeks, if, if you are ready to be baptized, if you're ready to say, I want to go public with this, faith, with this faith, I'm glad the circumcision things, you know, that's in the past. This is this new outward expression. But it's this celebration and this witness that I've given my life to Jesus, that I've surrendered to him and accepted this work that he's done for me. That's coming up in two weeks. This last week, we had a, a lady in the church email us and say, I, I'm ready to get baptized, and I don't want to wait. And we're like, you know, we have this whole thing that we set up, and I was like, okay. And she's like, it needs to be now. And I was like, okay. So I called in Ian yesterday. We set up the baptismal, and we celebrated with her with her family. That's an outward expression, this inward transformation. And maybe for you, it's time to take a step to, to baptism. 
We'd love to chat with you about it. Maybe the work that is done in you, you need to just come to a place of surrender. Like if God's calling you to radical faithfulness and obedience, you know what that means deep down inside your soul. And today, when we create time here, whether you need to go to the cross or to prayer, to just say, Lord, would you continue to work in me and renew me? And maybe for you, it's a time to just be activated. You're ready to say, God, flow through me. The work that you are doing, do it through me. Use me in this place. Allow me to just be your servant in this place. And today's a day where just God activates you. We're going to invite Tyler up to close our time in communion. The band's going to come up. But maybe uh, for you, it's a time of restoration in your relationship with God. It's, it's a reminder of faithfulness. Maybe it's a celebration of what he's done. However you need to respond in these next moments, we just want to create space for that as we close with this old hymn. And as we hear these words of our celebration supper, of the things that we remember, how Christ has made a way, All right. Well, in the same way that the Israelites were called to remember and celebrate what God has done, uh, we remember and celebrate and proclaim through the Lord's Supper, through communion. Jesus said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If those who hear my voice open the door, I will come in to them and eat with them and they with me. The Apostle Paul tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to tell us that in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul then reminds us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. You're a follower of Jesus. You are invited to communion this morning. Uh, We'll just take it as the band plays. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. Dying and living, Jesus declared your love and gave us grace and opened the gate of eternal glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. May we who drink his cup bring life to others. May we whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.